Well, as we continue through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to be looking at that passage in Mark chapter 9, where Jesus, with three of the disciples, went up on a mountain, and they heard the voice of God speak, and a cloud covered to show that they were meeting with God. That's also true in Exodus chapter 19, where about 1,500 years earlier, Moses did the same thing, went up on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered the mountain, so he knew he was meeting with God, and he heard the Lord speak. This is going to help us as we consider what it means to truly hear God, to truly see God in our lives. And as we take a moment to visualize that here in Monterey, we are blessed, aren't we, with some wonderful mountains all around us. Imagine going up, and in addition to being able to see a beautiful city, to be able to experience what we see described for us, to know definitively that God is speaking, that God is present in your lives. It's fact. Perhaps you've heard someone describe that before, to say that they have heard God speak. Others might even ask that question, what does it mean to truly hear from God, to truly see God at work? Well, here in Mark chapter 9, we're given some amazing ways that we can have confidence to know when God truly does speak, when God truly does act, so that we don't have to wonder, are those our own opinions? We don't have to wonder when someone claims that they've heard from God when it wasn't really him at all. In fact, the first way we can see that is in the very first word in the original language of Greek, and it's actually carried over from the original language of Hebrew. Jesus starts in verse 1 by saying, Truly, I tell you, older translations in English would say, Verily, sometimes Jesus would even repeat it, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Truly, truly, I say unto you, which it's a word we actually know from the original languages. It's the word amen. We've even used that together this morning when we've taken time to pray. Usually amen we use at the end of a prayer to say that I believe this. This is true. Jesus used it at the beginning of statements as a way to call attention, to say listen up. Hear this God-honest truth. Sort of like a loudspeaker making a, a loud noise like a train whistle coming by to get our attention to know that something is happening here. Or you get on a plane, right? And you say, this is your captain speaking. Listen to the emergency information. For our purposes this morning, as we consider what it means to truly hear God's voice, the first thing, even from that first word in this passage, 
It's meant to show us that Jesus doesn't just speak the truth. He is the truth. This whole passage, what happens, the the Bible itself is not something that Jesus shared as if he wanted us to negotiate with him. God doesn't ask us our opinion when it comes to truth. He and he alone defines what is true. In fact, even when people say that, to say that they're in a pursuit of what is true without realizing it, what they are actually needing is Jesus. This is why amen here is not just a word we use at the end of a prayer, that is something that we do, but it's a way to recognize that we are identifying God is the truth. All things and all things we know come from him. We even did that together this morning at the end of prayer when we pray together. We pray and say out loud often, amen, because we are agreeing to say yes. We're not just agreeing with that person. We're recognizing that we are praying together for God's truth to be made known. In fact, we're told this elsewhere in the Bible. A few weeks ago, we looked at Revelation chapter 2 and 3 briefly where there are seven letters written to groups of Christians about what it means to be a church. But it also tells us about the very one who writes these words, who says these words and speaks these truths to us. In Revelation 3.14, Jesus says these are the very words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. He is the amen. He is truth itself. In fact, even as we pause to recognize that here in the year 2024, isn't it true it's becoming harder and harder to fact-check information? They even came up with that term, didn't they? Fact-check the truth to make sure it's not disinformation or misinformation. With the coming technology of artificial intelligence and AI, It's going to become increasingly harder, isn't it, to recognize if a video was actually recorded of real events or if it's something artificial used to try to mislead. But if you remember correctly, if you go back into class when they taught us how to write research papers, one of the very first things they did was to show us credible resources, credible sources. You had to cite information to show it's not your information that you did the research. And in the hopes that after you write a research paper, perhaps other people would use that to see where you got your information from to cite it moving forward. But here when it comes to Jesus, he is the amen. He is the truest source there is. That's why we look to him for honesty, integrity, authority. He's always reliable. He's always truthful. We look to him to bring clarity to our lives, to our world, that in an ever-changing world that tries to create other technologies to try to misuse and, 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 and try to dissuade people, we can always turn to Jesus and rely on what he says. He is the amen. We're meant to build our lives upon him and his 
truth alone. Another short verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. It says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken to us to the glory of God. How incredible is it when we read this and take a moment to recognize this? We are the result of God's promises. They were given long ago, all the way throughout history. God had promised to send a Savior to pay for and to die for sin. This is God's promise to us that's made realized through Jesus. In other words, the only way to truly understand God is through Jesus. He is the yes from God to us. And there it is again. He is the amen. The amen that's spoken through us. Meaning the reason we can declare amen, it is true. We believe this. We declare this to be true as we pray, as we worship, as we sing, as we celebrate. We do it because of what God has done through Christ. And the result, as we see here, is we get to experience God's glory in our lives to be the fulfillment of these amazing, incredible promises to save us from sin. In fact, in Mark chapter 9, that's what these disciples got to see. They got to see a glimpse of Jesus glorified before their very eyes. They heard God audibly speak, but the only reason this was true was because of Jesus. And that's why when Jesus said in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, I tell you the truth, truly I say to you, we need to look to him and to listen to his words. And in this case, verse 1, Jesus even made that promise there that some would not taste to death. They would not die before they saw the glory of God on display, the power of God in his kingdom. Which when they heard that, they wondered, is that meaning the end of all times, the end of all things were coming? That God would finally deal with our world and bring peace, lasting peace. Many even throughout history have wondered that. What did Jesus mean by that? Well, we don't have to look very far in this case to see how Jesus fulfilled that promise because verse 2 continues on to say, Jesus' very words were fulfilled six days later through this very event where Peter, James, and John went up on the mountain to see Jesus' glory on display. But as we read over this, it maybe brings up a question that I know I've wondered myself. Why only three of the disciples? Why didn't Jesus take all 12 of the disciples? One easy answer might be, well, when they went up there, it was Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, and then Peter, James, and John. So perfect symmetry, that kind of fits. If he tried to bring all 12, maybe there would have been too many people up there. It was just meant to be a, an intimate moment. But the conclusion that we make here shouldn't be that Jesus loved Peter, James, and John more. It wasn't that they were greater, because even in chapter 9, Jesus continues to go forward to talk about how greatness is defined by humility, by being a servant. But the reality is we could even say the same thing for us as well, right? Here we are reading this passage 
And we weren't included. We didn't get to go up on that mountain. Why is it that we didn't get to experience this? Why did they get to experience it? But the reality is we don't have to be discluded. We get a chance here to read what actually happened and allow that to inform how we understand who Jesus is. In fact, if we don't do that, if we dismiss, if we neglect what Jesus has said, it can have disastrous results. In fact, Jesus simplifies that in Matthew chapter 7 and talks about what it means to truly hear these words from Jesus and apply them to your life. He does it through a simple illustration story. Matthew 7, 20 through 29, Jesus says, Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And here we are a few thousand years later with a lot of history in between. And certainly today, we have different styles of homes. We can build with different building materials than they could back then. We decorate houses and buildings differently than in Jesus' day. However, what Jesus says here is just as true today as it was when they first heard it. Because if you notice, the emphasis is not about how the home looks. The house here represents our lives. The point here is not the emphasis on what your life looks like. Not your clothing style, your personality, what languages you speak, your interests, your abilities, your hopes and desires and dreams, your hobbies. The point is not to say that those things don't matter to God, but Jesus is saying there is something far superior that is the most important. It's not just what your life looks like. It's what your life is built upon. Jesus is saying when it comes to a building, the foundational part is its foundation. In fact, Jesus is even saying even if a house looks amazing, is beautiful, it has all the right walls and decorations and the roof is all there and everything at first glance looks great, but if it's built on sand, the wrong foundation, nothing else matters, does it? But the opposite is true too. Even if you saw someone's life at first glance, or someone's house. Maybe it's not much to look at. Maybe they've gone through some storms already. They have some weak, weak areas. They've gone through some tough things. They feel pretty roughed up. Jesus says in the promises that if you build your life on him, you will not fail. You will not fall. That's how important Truth is the right foundation. And Jesus tells us that his foundation 
is not just hearing about Jesus, not just listening about him and saying, okay, that sounds great, but he says truly living in light of faith by living in light and putting it into practice. Because Jesus tells us when to do this. He doesn't just say, here's some important things that later on down the road, if you find yourself in a storm, you might want to consider this later. No, Jesus says to listen now. It matters now because if you respond to Christ in faith, when the storms come, this is how God's wisdom works. It helps us at all times. It's true now, today. It was true then. It's true even in the storms of life. It gives us confidence. To build your life on Jesus is to be secure. Even through the toughest storm, the worst problems, and ultimately Jesus is pointing to the coming judgment after death. Jesus promises that if you place your faith in him, your life will not come crashing down. But if you also notice, Jesus isn't saying that it's just obedience alone. Jesus isn't saying to build your life on trying to do the right things, trying to show how spiritual you are, just trying to be a good person. Jesus is saying if you do that, that is still building your own foundation, which is like sand. He says you need my words, you need my foundation. He's the amen, the true one, the faithful one that's useful in all times in our life. It's not by obedience alone. It's upon hearing our need for Jesus, trusting his words, resting in him by his grace alone. In fact, as we continue in Mark chapter 9, Peter gives us an example of what happens if we try to figure this out by ourselves. Because right here, Peter started up on this mountain journey and quickly things happened differently than he expected. Seeing Moses and Elijah and the glory of Jesus shining, he started to get overwhelmed. He wasn't quite sure how to respond. And in verse 2, it tells us that Jesus being transfigured, we're not left to try to figure out what that means. It says that he was his clothes became dazzling white, more brilliant than anything that we could see. So as we try to wrap our minds around this, in verses 5 and 6, we're told what, what Peter does. He speaks up. He says, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Which at first glance, we might scratch our heads and wonder, what is he saying? Why is he responding this way? But, but verse 6 tells us, doesn't it? He didn't know what to say. It even includes James and John to say they were frightened. They were overwhelmed. What this shows us is that when it comes to listening to God, just as Peter is doing here, we need to be careful not to read into things with our own interpretations. Our next point this morning is we need to let God speak. Don't read in to what God says. 
If you think about it, Peter doesn't ask a question. That could have been a good opportunity. Jesus, what should we do? Peter, James and, James and John as well, they were all frightened. They didn't bring that up to say, Jesus, we're, we're a little overwhelmed here. Instead, they started, Peter started to figure it out, to try to say, okay, I think I see an opportunity here. I think I know what to do. In fact, we're told definitively he didn't quite put it together. It's no different than us in our lives. No one likes to be misunderstood. No one likes it when someone says, well, what did you mean by that? Or when you said that, I thought you meant this. And you say, well, I didn't say that at all. I was trying to think about that in my own life, and I was reminded of when my wife and I were first dating, I uh, was not one to send uh, emojis through text messages, but my wife, I noticed, liked to send little, little, little pictures of emojis, you know, smiley faces. And so I thought, okay, this might be an opportunity to get to know her. So I sent one, and immediately she called me up. What did you mean by that? I said, I don't know. What did I say? She said, you gave me the blinky face with the little tear and the smiley. I said, I don't know. I thought he was smiling. She said, no, I thought everything was wrong. I said, no, everything's fine. What is said, it matters, isn't it? In that case, it just took a moment to clarify when we communicate with one another, but how much more so when it comes to understanding what God has said? There's a lot of danger that can happen when we listen for God's voice and we start to think, well, what God really meant was this, or, ah, you know, the Bible might have said this, but I think this is what God really meant to say. The theological terms for this when it comes to studying and interpreting the Bible is exegesis and asegesis, and don't let the words um, mislead or be misunderstood. So here we can understand it. Exegesis comes like from the word exit to pull out from. When we read the Bible, we're starting with the truth to say we want to take that truth and allow that truth to be pulled into our lives. But Jesus does the opposite. It's taking my ideas and trying to put it into the Bible, reading into what we think the Bible should say. Classic example from this that always sticks with me is from 1 Samuel chapter 17, maybe one that we are all familiar with. It's where David faced the giant Goliath. It's an incredible story, isn't it? David was the youngest and while Israel, God's people, were fighting against the Philistines, no one was willing to stand up against Goliath, who was saying hateful things against God, who was saying disrespectful things against God's people, and they were all afraid, including King Saul, to stand up for what is right. Meanwhile, David, David said, someone needs to put a stop to this. That's why in 1 Samuel 17, verses 38 and 39, it even describes for us that King Saul said, okay, and he tried to put on David his armor. And David says, I can't go in these, he said to King Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off, and verse 40 says, then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Some incredible detail. But we need to be careful not to read too far into this passage. And so an example of reading it and pulling out or, or trying to read in would be to say, well, see here that 
David took five, five stones. And I even heard this once presented to say, well, each of those stones represented something that God helped David with. The first stone represented faith. David had faith. The second stone represented kindness, and David had kindness. And the third one represented, I don't know, getting a good night's rest, and so on and so on. When the reality is, the Bible doesn't tell us anything about what those stones represented. The reason that David took five stones, and we're told that, is because he took five stones. They were stones. We don't need to add to make that true. There's a danger. In fact, we're already told here that David didn't want to take armor, and it wasn't even the stones that ultimately defeated Goliath. If we go back just a verse in verse 37, it says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, David said, And the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. David's telling us it was God who protected As he looked back in his life to see that God helped him when he was a shepherd to protect sheep. It's God who gives the victory. And we can be encouraged on what that means for God to protect us as well, even if we have to face an actual giant, because David faced an actual giant. But we're meant to see it's God who gives the victory. What the Bible says is important. We don't need to add. To do so is dangerous. It's misleading. It completely misses the point of what God says. We listen to him first. And that's why Peter, James, and John, they found themselves in this moment with Jesus where they were frightened. We're even told Peter didn't know what to say. He made his own interpretation. And in fairness, he he says the three shelters because he sees... Uh, Moses and Elijah, Moses living 1,500 years before Jesus did. That's not something you see every day. Elijah lived 500 years before. Both of them were prophets. Moses received the laws of God, the Ten Commandments, plus the Old Testament. This was an important moment, but Peter sees this, and his focus is trying to make sense of it himself. Essentially, putting up these shelters, he wants to make this moment last. And if you notice, by putting three shelters, he's putting Jesus on equal standing as Elijah and Moses, when the reality was they were there to point to Jesus' coming, to show that Jesus has come to fulfill all that God had promised leading up to his coming. He failed to see in this moment that it was Jesus the one glorified, Jesus the one who was transfigured before their eyes. Peter was trying to make this moment last for his own purposes instead of seeing the greatness of Jesus. That's why in verses 7 and 8, to correct this, God's voice from the cloud appeared and enveloped them, and the voice came and said, This is my son whom I love. Listen, to him. Cloud covered the mountain as it had done at different times in history, as we already saw with Moses back in Exodus. But in this moment, Peter wasn't figuring it out. But later in the Bible, we actually are told more about Peter's experience from his very perspective. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter finally says, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, 
Here's what he remembered about this event. It says, For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain, and we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for the prophecy for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So later, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, just as he said, Peter was remembering his experiences. If you notice, he doesn't include Elijah and Moses. We're already told about that. But he tells us what he heard. He remembered what was truly important. God's voice that spoke. He doesn't describe for us what God sounded like. Was it booming? Was it soft? Was it sweet? Those are interesting things to consider. But he tells us the content of what God said. Know the greatness of Jesus. To understand the Incredible love of God our Father who sent his one and only Son to live in our place, to die in our place, to know this is how God is pleased, how we receive the perfect love of God. This is what we're meant to know. This is what we're meant to see in our lives as well. That's why in verse 18, Peter even says, we know this because we were there. This isn't something that's made up. Verse 19, he again points back. That's what Elijah and Moses, the prophets, that's what they were saying before the coming of Jesus. But we have something greater, the certainty of Jesus, the certainty of his life and his death. And as great as that mountaintop experience was, we're told we have something better. We have the very word of God to know that he speaks into our lives as we listen, as we humble ourselves to recognize our need to hear his voice. Our next point as we consider this together is to see that God reveals Jesus through his inspired word. That's the power of God's voice as we listen to the Bible. That's why we devote time in the midst of all the busyness, in the midst of all the different information that's out there, to make sure we never neglect the Word of God. Peter was on that mountain with Jesus. He was wondering, is this it? Is this is the moment that we've all been waiting for, the coming of Jesus in his full glory? And they saw it for a glimpse, but it was to point forward to the glory that was coming after the cross. They got to see this glory for a moment. But ultimately, Jesus come, came for a greater purpose. That's why in verses 20 and 21, we have Peter telling us this by God's inspiration and authority through the Bible to say that this isn't invented. This is not something that they came up with on their own. This is because God decided it to be true. God graciously reveals this to us. God is the source. 
Jesus is the only way for salvation. And we should be grateful that God has gifted this to us so that it could be revealed in our hearts so that we can respond by faith through his grace. These verses address, up, uh, address an issue that often come up with people who wonder about the Bible. I know I've had people ask me this as well, to say, how can you trust the Bible? Isn't it written by people? How can you trust anything that's written by someone? Well, God loves us enough to address that issue. It's told right here, isn't it? These verses tell us that this isn't something that people made up. The Bible doesn't hide the fact that Peter sat down and wrote this, but he tells us about his experiences with Jesus. And he tells us as they wrote, they were carried along by God the Holy Spirit. Because it's God that gives the authority and accuracy of the Bible, not people themselves. It's not a person's will or desire or interpretation. It's God. God is the source. And the word for that is inspiration. Peter is telling us what happened, but he's also saying that he was carried along by the power of the Holy Spirit to write this down by God's authority so that we could hear God's voice and for this to be revealed to us through his word. The result of which is for our lives to be changed. Nothing else deserves greater honor and respect than to listen to God's perfect word. He is what gives it authority. He's the one in charge. And it's through the treasure of God's word that we can hear this amazing gift of salvation from sin through Christ. God's perfect holy word, the Bible. That's how we know God's voice. This whole situation isn't about Peter and James, John. It's not about Moses, Elijah. It's about God telling us about Jesus. Showing the authority that Jesus has, the king of all kings. He was on that mountain. He was glorified for a moment. Then Jesus later on went on to give his life upon the cross, was raised to new life by God's spirit the same Holy Spirit that works in our lives. No individual or person makes that claim by their own authority. But we only do so because of the authority that God gives. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we see a few verses that describe it for us in a different way. Starting in verse 14, it says, But as for you, writing to Timothy originally, continue in what you have learned have become convinced of because you know that those whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16 says, All scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Verses 16 and 17 are often looked at to describe for us once again how we can trust the Bible and how it was written. But we included here verses 14 and 15 to show us the importance of the commitment to the Bible, which has great benefit. 
to be devoted to learning. In fact, it even cites here people in Timothy's life that helped him teach it, referencing his family. To know the importance of making sure that we encourage one another to be sharing with others what we've heard. And these verses are meant to frame for us again how we can know God's voice through the Bible to know that it's useful. It helps us in all areas, just as we saw the foundation of Jesus. That's why verse 16 starts off by saying all Scripture, all words, every word, every word in the Bible is here for our benefit. It has been breathed from God, spoken to us. It's God who initiated it. It's God who spoke it. It's God who gives it authority into our hearts and lives. Sadly, the authority of Scripture has been something that many people have wondered about and started to question. Many people saying, well, yeah, some parts of the Bible might be true, but how do we know that other parts are true? And how do we know, especially with translation? Well, here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're told definitively, no, all Scripture. The very God who created the entire universe by the power of his word has also spoken so that by reading, by hearing, by listening to what he said, our lives can be changed through faith in Christ. We rely on his authority, not our own, which is why a, a man by the name of Augustine who lived in about 400s A.D.E., he saw this to be true in his day when others had started to question the reliability of the, the Bible. Actually, his whole life was a testimony of that. Because before he became a Christian, he was well-educated. He went to every school to learn different languages, the different philosophies of the day, and yet the reality was, before he became a Christian, he said he started to realize his own desires we're starting to take over his own doubts, his own thinking, wondering there has to be more than just the philosophy of the day. Those were making him miserable and depressed. And thankfully, by the encouragement of others, he finally turned to the Bible. He realized the reason for his restlessness was because he needed Christ. He needed a true change of heart, and it begins and continues with a full commitment to follow Jesus and what he says, which is why after Augustine reading the Bible and giving his life to studying the Bible and following Jesus by grace, he then went on to help people in his day, and even still today, many look back to learn about what he says, but when he commented here about the authority of Scripture, about the inspiration of Scripture to help shed light on this. He warned to never let our failure to understand the Bible make us somehow think that the Bible is not truly inspired, that it's not authoritative or perfect from God. He says, we're the ones that get it wrong. But when we get it wrong, it's not because the Bible is wrong. We can start by trusting in what God has said. In fact, I had a mentor in my life who's still a great encouragement to me who shared that this was his testimony. He said he looked at the Bible and he says, from my perspective, it didn't make sense. He was trying to understand how is it that we can learn and study the Bible. What he realized is he said it was the wrong conclusion. He said it's like looking at a mountain. 
and seeing how is it that I can understand it. But when he finally said, you know what? I'm done with trying to figure out myself. God, if you're in charge, your word, the Bible is true. And when he believed that and made that commitment and pledged to God, he said it was like coming up on top of the mountain. And by starting with that conclusion that every word from the Bible is true, he said it finally fit. I didn't have to start striving to try to figure it out on my own. I could rely on the authority of God's word to speak into my life. That's why we keep coming back to listen to what God says, why we spend time like this to worship, why we make sure that we take time in our lives to read and to study. And as we see here in Mark 9, it was God's very voice that spoke to say, this is my son, listen to him, know his love for you. The disciples even had Jesus transfigured before their eyes, trying to figure it out and what that means. But as we finish out, verses 8 and 9, they look around and they see that the others were gone. It was only Jesus that was left. As great as that mountaintop experience was, they continued on with their lives. Even though that had finished, we're meant to know that the glory of Jesus, the true greatness of Jesus, never fades. They had come down the mountain. They had a moment in their life. But the point was that Jesus was going to the cross to give his life, to die for sin, and to be raised to new life to show us that Jesus was doing something greater than that moment on the mountain. We can look back to see how incredible it is for Jesus to do this, to accomplish this for our lives. Which is why Moses in Exodus 24, about 1,500 years before Jesus, he met with God on a mountain. He received the laws and commands of God. But we see through Moses' example and what that means for us to live by the glory of God in our lives that never fades. In Exodus 34, his experience with God in verse 29 says, Moses came down from Mount Sinai with two tablets, that's the Ten Commandments of the testimony in his hand, and he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. A way for the people to know that Moses was with God. Beholding God's glory, Moses shone with the very glory and radiance of God. And then in verses 33, 35, it said, Moses finished speaking to the people, but he put a veil over his face because whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out, and then he came out and told the Israelites what had been commanded. They saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went to speak with the Lord. It's very similar to what Peter, James, and John experienced. Moses spent time with God on the mountain. But when people saw Moses, they were afraid. They were concerned. They didn't understand. It's not something you see every day. They saw the glory of God shining from Moses. Just like Peter, James, and John, they saw the glory of Jesus glorified in that moment before going to the cross to die for sin. Many had wondered what this was all about and how to apply that to our lives. But then in 2 Corinthians 3, 
We're told what this is, how this can be applied, how we can understand the true glory and see that displayed in our lives as well, not just now, but forever. 2 Corinthians 3.13 says, We are not like Moses. He put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. And then in verse 18 it says, But we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Looking back, we see these moments that people had with God, Peter, James, and John, thousands of years before that. Uh, even earlier, Moses saw the glory for a moment, but it faded. But we're told now the veil has been lifted for all who place their faith and trust in Jesus. There is a glorious transformation that takes place. And the reason is because of what Jesus has done for us and what God promises to continue to do in us. This gives us boldness to live with unveiled lives and faces to show that we've committed our lives to Christ. And his likeness is now in us and not a temporary glory. It's described as an ever-increasing glory. Peter, James, and John, they saw it and were frightened. Moses' face was shining and people misunderstood it. It came and went. But now through Christ, his work upon the cross for sin has been finished. Gives us boldness to know that God's glory was once veiled, but through the death and resurrection of Christ, all who place their faith in him because of grace, we can know we can experience the full glory of God to boldly live in light of eternal life that only he gives. It means that God is no longer far away. We don't have to go to mountains to experience this because God promises to meet in the heart of every believer who turns to Jesus to be saved. This means our lives are not just changed by a thought or a belief. It's a full faith conviction to trust and rely on what Jesus has done. That's what we're meant to see with the disciples and with Moses in these encounters that ultimately pointed to our need for Jesus, for our lives to be changed, both now and forever. This is why there's confidence in what God has said, his word, to know that Jesus, by faith, lets our lives shine as we listen to what God has said to speak through our lives for his glory both now and forever. Would you join me again in prayer this morning? Dear Heavenly Father, we again recognize the difficulty it is in this world to try to put things together and try to understand what is truly real and right. But we're so thankful for your perfect word that you've gifted to us, we do not deserve to know the truth of the Bible. But we ask that they wouldn't just be words that we read and then forget about, that they would help us to truly understand who you are and what it means to build our life upon the foundation of Jesus. 
So even when we go through the storms of this life, or even as we look forward, we don't have to do so with fear. We can live confident that to trust in Jesus, all our sin has been wiped away. Would you help us to continue to be committed to knowing who you are, to be willing to recognize our failures, but to declare that when we turn to you, it's forgiven. Help us to live boldly, God. Help us to shine your light, the light of Jesus, the light of your truth, to this dark world, to those who may not yet know that Jesus is the only way for salvation. Today is the day of salvation. To know that it, we don't have to wait, we cannot wait. But it's as simple as recognizing that and asking to be forgiven. Thank you so much for sending us your one and only son. Would you continue to bless us to serve you and to share this love with others in need as we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.